Hi there, this is Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is the Love to Tell the Story podcast. It's a simple meal of bread and wine that we as Christians refer to as the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or, or maybe the joyful feast of the people of God, and it's one of the sacraments of the church. But what's so special about communion? That's the question we're asking in today's message, which is based on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 32, and which begins with a story about spiritual discipline and a cat. Well, the story is told of an old man, a devout Christian, who each and every morning spent a period of time in prayer and meditation in his bedroom. It was a spiritual discipline that over time had become an essential part of the man's life. The only difficulty with this, however, was that the man also owned a cat. And as cats are wont to do, each morning as this man settled into his time and began to pray, the cat would inevitably cozy up to him, rub his furry body all over, and purr so loudly as to be rather distracting. Now, if you're a cat person, then you already know you can't simply get a cat to get off you or set it off to one side and expect it to take the hint. And this particular cat, you see, was determined and really disruptive of the man's prayer time. So the man came up with a rather interesting solution. He actually put a collar around the cat's neck. And each morning when it came time for his prayer, he would tie the cat to the bedpost. Cat didn't seem to mind it. And it meant that the man could pray uninterrupted. And it worked very well for him for for, for many years, in fact. Well, the story goes on to say how the man's daughter had observed this as she was growing up, and and seeing how much that the spiritual discipline had meant to her father, she decided that she was going to do just as he had done. And so every morning, very dutifully, she tied her cat to the bedpost and proceeded with her prayer time. Although it should be noted here that given the pace of her life was considerably faster than that of her father's, she really couldn't give as much time to this discipline of prayer as did he. But the tradition carried on. And years passed again, and eventually the daughter had a son of her own, and as that son grew to adulthood, he was also determined to preserve the spiritual practice of his mother and his grandfather. However, his life, well, it had become so hectic that somewhere along the line, he found he really didn't have any time at all for this daily period of devotion. But in order to carry out that hallowed family tradition, he got up each and every morning, and while he was getting dressed and getting ready for the work, he would dutifully tie up his cat to the bedpost. (laughs) The Reverend Dr. Stephen Machia, in his book, Becoming a Healthy Church, writes that ultimately this time we're spending together each week 
is all about God exalting worship. It is, he says, the time in which the body of Christ gathers to worship God in ways that engage the heart, mind, soul, and strength of the people. What should happen here, writes Machia, is for our lives and our faith to intersect amidst the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, and the liturgy that make up parts of the service. It should affect us in ways that cannot help that, but affect everything else in our lives. Uh, to quote Tom Farley in that same book, it ought to become the warp and woof of our lives. But all that said, it's also true, as we heard in that story about the cat, that ritual sometimes has a way of replacing the reality that it was meant to convey. The act of worship, unless we're very careful about it, can easily become something that is done well, for lack of a better term, pretty much by the numbers. That is, we can go through the motions of prayer and song and liturgy without it really having any real meaning for us at all. To put a finer point on this, for a whole lot of people, the habit of coming to worship has long since taken precedence over the actual experience of worship. In other words, it all becomes about the routine. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not standing up here to cast dispersions, and I know what I say is not true of everyone. But sometimes where the act and attitude of worship is concerned, sometimes, mind you, we do have this tendency to merely tie our cats to the bedpost like we always do on a Sunday morning. And sadly, again, sometimes... That's particularly true when it comes to communion. Communion, or, or should I say the sacrament of Holy Communion, or the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or as we sometimes say in the liturgy, the joyful feast of the people of God. Whatever its nomenclature, it's our tradition. It's a Christian tradition that dates back to the earliest days of the church. From the very beginning, it has been a way of remembering, reenacting, really, Jesus' last supper with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. Communion is understood to be a true act of Christian worship. And whether it happens at every service in which Christians gather, as what happens in some traditions, whether it's set at certain times throughout the church year or on the first Sunday of every month, just like we do it here, we believe that we come to this table at Christ's invitation and in Christ's presence as we share broken bread and a cup of blessing. It should also be said here, I think, that over the centuries and throughout the life of the church, communion has been, shall we say, done in a variety of ways. I remember back in seminary reading that there are some 50 official and proper ways of administering the sacrament of Holy Communion. 50. 
Now, I don't know who decided these things. I know that I have never done all 50, and by the time I retire, I will not have done all 50 ways. But I can tell you how communion is celebrated varies widely from church to church, from tradition to tradition. Uh, Sometimes it is observed in styles very formal and very high church. Sometimes it's something as informal as a dinner roll and juice being passed from person to person around a campfire. But however it's celebrated, you see, we believe that there's something uniquely special about this sacrament of the church, this holy feast of communion. But again, as that said, the question then becomes, if there are in fact 50 good and proper ways of doing communion, who knows how many wrong ways there are of doing it? It's a good question, and one that, that, that bears our reflection, because we wouldn't want to inadvertently honor our host, who is, in fact, the Lord himself. What are the wrong ways of doing communion? Well, our text for this morning that Kay shared with us actually provides one answer to that question. In Corinthians, as the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth, specifically about the Lord's Supper. And it is not, as you heard, an encouraging word. It's pretty hardcore. In fact, I never really thought about it this way, but this is one of very few passages in Scripture that actually discourages believers from coming to worship. At least, don't come to worship if you're not going to do it right. Apparently, you see, for the Corinthians, the Lord's Supper had become little more than an opportunity for a huge meal and a big party. In this case, the party that was filled with factious, bickering guests, all of which became reflected in how the Lord's Supper itself was being celebrated. Paul speaks about how, for a whole lot of them, communion had become little more than an opportunity and an excuse for eating to excess and and for drinking to excess and getting drunk. Even worse, says Paul, it became an opportunity for some to come so early to the supper, eating so much and really, you know, binging on everything that was being served, that others who would come later were left without anything at all. See, the bottom line is for these Christians in Corinth, who, by the way, in uh, in, uh, speaking with Kay about it, I was saying one thing we got to remember about Corinthians, I mean, there's lots of passages in 1 Corinthians, all about love is patient and kind. And, but basically, you've got uh, several chapters there that discuss a church that just didn't seem to get along for any reason. And so it is here. The bottom line is that for these Christians in Corinth, for all their talk of faith and worship, there was actually very little consideration given for the meaning of the sacrament, even less acknowledgement of the Lord's presence as they were celebrating it. This was as far from a sacred celebration as it gets. And as Kay shared with us in the reading, Paul let them know this in no uncertain terms. What, he says, do you not have households to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? By the way, I really love 
in this instance, how Eugene Peterson translated it in the message, I can't believe it. Why? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would have stooped to this. Stoop seems to be the operative word here. And I am not going to stand by and say nothing. And he certainly did not say nothing. Now, clearly, friends, Paul's rebuke in this text amounts to more than their having let an act of worship become some rote exercise. And yet, in this reading, Paul does make the point of suggesting that when it comes to communion, there is real danger in letting familiarity breed contempt. Do not forget. After all the stuff he says about the Corinthians, he says, do not forget For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Be careful, he says. Don't let your feasting at the table become so familiar, so routine, so much like every other meal you've ever eaten, so much like every other gathering you have, that it ceases to become special or sacred. It becomes diminished in the process. Because, he concludes, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Well, so it was for the Corinthians. And so it is for you and me today, friends. You see, at the end of the day, what's so special about communion is so much more than the continuation of an ancient Christian tradition. When we gather for the Lord's Supper, we are here for no less of a purpose than to actively interact with God. We have come so we can stand in awe before God's presence. We have come so that we can experience what theologians refer to as the mysterium tremendum, That is, the tremendous mystery of the divine. We come to this table ultimately to open ourselves to God's presence, God's will, and God's purpose for our lives. Paul says this very clearly. If you're going to come to the table, if you're going to partake of the bread and the cup, understand first that what happens at that table is not all about you or me but rather it's about what God has done. It's about what God continues to do for us in Christ and through his Holy Spirit. So, here's the message again. Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. In other words, don't be casual about it. Because when we approach this sacrament of the Lord's Supper with that kind of understanding, Incredible things can happen. Some years ago now, Lisa and I got to uh, attend a week-long National Pastors Conference out in San Diego, California. One of the more memorable experiences uh, that we've shared. And we were out there together with 700 other clergy and clergy spouses from literally all over the country. 
That and in and of itself was a culture shock for this New England pastor, I gotta tell you. I mean, I literally had a California surfer slash youth pastor from Malibu address me, dude. And I loved it. I asked him to greet me again. <laughs> Truthfully, though, looking back on that experience, and there were so many great speakers, so many people that I, I read and, and listen to online to this very day, the best part was it was maybe the most diverse group of Christians with, uh, that, with whom I have ever been gathered. And it was an amazing experience. And I get to tell you, that experience all came home to me at the closing service of worship, a service that was capped by the sharing of communion. Now, for the most part, it was a service not too terribly removed from what we would do here. There was broken bread and a shared cup. There were prayers. There were the traditional words of institution out of Scripture. And there was lots and lots of singing. But then we were asked to break up into groups of 10 or 12 so that we could have communion with each other, which was in itself very, very meaningful. And I, I was just trying to soak it all in. I, I still think about it to this day. And I remember at some point during this experience, I looked up to see what was happening all around me in this huge convention hall that had become now a sanctuary filled with 700 Christians, all worshiping together in one place, but each one doing communion pretty much their own way. There were some who kept very much to a traditional form of worship, and others who were, well, to say the least, freestyle about it all. There were those who held hands with each other as they prepared to receive the sacrament, there were others who were quietly singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving. And as I looked around, I saw lots of hugging. I heard laughter, but I also heard the sound of tears being shed. There were those amongst that crowd who had wandered off by themselves, not because they were antisocial, but rather because at that moment they felt the strong need to be alone to pray. Some were reserved about expressing their love of God. I saw that all week. But others were incredibly demonstrative and verbal about it. Folks, they don't call them holy rulers for nothing. <laughs> Suffice to say that this was different than any communion service I'd ever been a part of. And it's there that it hit me. Here were all these people from staid parish priests to evangelical surfer dudes, each and all worshiping in a myriad of ways, and yet, at the very heart of it, they were each and all the same. We were all the same. You see, underlying all the varied traditions and worship styles, each one of us was worshiping the very same God. Each one of us were followers of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Each one of us intent on sharing new life in Christ's name. Each one of us seeking to know his divine presence in a little piece of bread and a sip of unfermented wine. In fact, at that moment, I remember thinking, 
that in this one fleeting instance, I was witness to a modest but powerful manifestation of Jesus' prayer for his disciples, the one that he prayed on the night of betrayal and desertion, a prayer that they may all be one. And the thing is, you know, what I experienced that day, that meal I shared amongst that huge gathering of believers, it's the exact same meal that you and I are going to be sharing here in just a few moments in this place. See, it doesn't matter if there's 700 people at the table or just seven. It doesn't matter how we do it, when we do it, where and how often we do it. Ultimately, what's special about communion is the remembering and the waiting. Each time you and I come to this table here to share in the bread and the cup, we're remembering our Lord Jesus. And we're proclaiming to ourselves, to one another, and to the world that we are awaiting our Lord's return. Remember, one very important piece of the liturgy is to say and to recall that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We wait, and while we wait, in amazing grace, we discover something. We discover that in the bread and the cup, that in fact Christ is with us all through that time and until that heavenly banquet at the close of history comes. And we remember who we are because of that that we're God's own children, that we are the recipients of salvation and renewal at the hands of a crucified and risen Lord. We are the people of a sure and certain promise of the life that truly is life and of a kingdom that is anchored in eternity. So let's remember today, friends. Let's make this more than just another time of communion in the church. Let's make it special. Let's remember Christ who has died for us and who gives us life. Let's remember the new life that is ours as his disciples. Let us remember and in his love and his mercy break bread for as often as we eat this bread and drink of that cup we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The table awaits, the invitation has been extended, so let us come and let our thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message we've entitled, What's So Special About Communion? It's part of our Lenten sermon series all about what's special about our Christian faith. And it was recorded during our March the 5th service of worship at East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, where, by the way, we invite you to join us in person for worship each and every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road, which is just off exit 16 of I-93 in Concord. I would love to have the opportunity to welcome you to our church, and I know you'll be glad you came. 
But for now, that's it for this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I thank you for listening today. And until next time, may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.